Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab. My name is Goose. My name is Gabby. And what are we talking about today? Lots of stuff. Lots of stuff. We're talking about everything from hiring, which was fun, through to um, the Holy Trinity. But in the middle, mm-hmm. the meat in the sandwich was the Goldilocks zone. The Goldilocks zone. Why is this important? Who's this for? This is for any property investor that wants to actually understand how to time the market really and why it makes sense to buy in a particular time in any location. Yeah. yeah. So it's basically understanding market movement, market cycles, yep. yield cycles relative to growth, um, when you should buy in those cycles, why uh, why doing development as a core strategy is stupid and how you can outperform the market. So really this episode is great for anyone who wants a higher performing property portfolio and wants to do less work. I have not met anyone so far that has come to work with us or come to have a chat with me about their strategy who doesn't want to do less and make more. Work less, make more, right? And so, so if you, yeah, so if you want to do less and make more at the same time, then understanding the Goldilocks zone is critical to your success in that venture. And of course, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure you like, subscribe, do all the good stuff, share it around on social media. Um, if you've enjoyed, if you enjoy listening to Gabby on this episode, make sure you let us know because Gabby's been doing a few less episodes lately. Hello, uh, hello, <laughs> Gabby. Have we missed anything? No. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it. This is a, this is a good episode. I think it's going to be really helpful. It's really, um, you know, people like when we talk about strategic and how, but it's also very tactical and and, and helpful. So, yeah, yeah, it's good. Totally. <laughs> I, I would go as far as to say anyone who doesn't understand this with the Goldilocks zone is going to have an underperforming property portfolio. Mm, so, ra- wrap your skin around this one if you want to. If you want to be a winner, 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 chicken dinner. Yeah. Cool. Well, without further ado, let's get stuck right into it. And I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Hey guys, welcome back to the Investor Lab. I am so happy today because I'm joined by my buddy Gabby. We haven't done a podcast together in a while. We haven't. Hello. How are you? Wonderful. How are you? Great. Why don't you why don't you tell everyone what's been going on? What's been going on? It's been a really interesting couple of months, really. I think it's been a couple of months that I did a podcast. It has been a well, it's been a, it's definitely been a few months since you recorded a podcast. Yeah. And I, st- I actually think it's been a couple of months since we released an episode that you were even on. How about that? Welcome back, Gabby. <laughs> Welcome back, Welcome Gabby. Back. Yay. <laughs> so, um, what's, what's Lot, news? What's lots been, going been on? happening? It, we're slammed at the moment in the business, yeah. which is amazing. Um, and we're also growing the team, which is also amazing. Mm. It's a lot of work growing a team. It's a lot of work hiring and training and... And all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be super hard hiring and growing a team and all that kind of stuff. I know loads of companies that grow, you know, really quickly and hire lots of people and do all that kind of stuff. But we've kind of created a rod for our own back because we've got uh, our standards are very, very, <laughs> very high. <laughs> They're very high. Yeah, it's um, which is good. And and I guess our position obviously is that we don't we're not prepared to compromise on that. No, mm. totally. And we're getting advice. So one, one of the roles in particular is for a client success manager at the moment. So, and I largely do that work in the business at the moment. So personally, I'm, I'm way too much of a perfectionist and my standards are way too high anyway. So in doing this, it's really quite interesting to, it's, I'm learning a lot about myself and about mm. my, my levels of perfectionism and we're getting advice from different people being like, you just got to bring someone on and just train them up and they don't have to be perfect. But then on the balance, you're like, I'd rather get the right person. And obviously, it's largely about like culture fit. Totally. First and foremost. So it's about finding, you know, who's going to absolutely love being on our team and we're going to be able to help them. Who's going to love our clients as much as we love them? That's the big question. You know what? I've been obviously doing a lot of um, uh, education and research and all of this kind of stuff as well because it's a big, you know, it's a big challenge. You know, we want to help a lot more people and stuff, but we obviously can't, we're not prepared to compromise on on excellence in order to do that. Mm -hmm. And I've heard this, I kept hearing this phrase time and time again, and it was called the mirror test. Hmm. Have you heard about that? No, no. What is that? 
So the mirror test is in hiring is is if you held a mirror up to their face, would it would they would they make a fog on the mirror? Basically, can they breathe? And that's the basis. Of, and <laughs> so 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 Low apparently standard. Then. Yeah, yeah, I know. But this is like apparently it's so common that that businesses um, just hire. Look, hey, you're a body. Get in here. Let's let's do this. That there's actually a terminology for it, and it's called the mirror test. So can you breathe? Would you would you fog up a mirror? Right, you're in, and anyway, so that's we we're not doing maybe that. one day, Goose. No, I don't know. No, no, no. Be on, human. <laughs> anyway, we're not here to talk about hiring today. Though no. that could be a really interesting episode. Actually, that could be a really interesting discussion around around team and culture and all of that kind of stuff. For sure. I think yeah. I, yeah. All right. Let's let's make a little note of that. But what are we here to talk about today? We're here to talk about a new concept that we've been it's it's been really helping our clients in the last couple of months um particularly and it's called the goldilocks zone mm. goose do you want to give a bit of an overview of what the goldilocks zone is totally you're gonna to have to shut me up because <laughs> i'm gonna you know me i'm gonna waffle on a, a little bit so, so for, first and foremost you, you said new it's not that new to us right yeah. but it's new to everyone else i yeah. think so what we need to kind of think about first and foremost is, is, is what we're really talking about is, is market cycles, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, before we get to actually what the Goldilocks zone is, I think we need to do some fundamentals on, on market cycles, Sweet. right? Because when people talk about property market cycles, they typically think about something called the property clock. And in hindsight, um, I actually included the, the property clock in my book. And I probably shouldn't have. I used it as a to, as a way to illustrate the way markets move, but I shouldn't. I shouldn't have used that because what it what it implies is that markets go up and down and round and round. Okay, mm-hmm. what it implies is that you know there's a peak of the market and then it starts to decline and then it's a declining market and then it declines a little bit more until it gets to the bottom of the market and then it comes up again and it's a rising market and then it goes up to the peak of the market. Right. Mm-hmm. So what that implies is that all markets go up and down and up. And down and up. In a perfect and cycle. Down. And yeah. Even and he, but even if you kind of detach from that like perfect circle kind of thing, mm-hmm. that just this idea that they go up and down or round and round is is a completely broken way of thinking, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so what we kind of need to reframe and retrain our our thinking paradigms around market cycles is is that it's actually more like a staircase. Mm, yeah, for sure. <laughs> so what actually what actually happens, and we need to think about time frames and all this kind of stuff. So I want you to try and you're, you're familiar enough with this that you might um, be like, yeah, yeah, cool, that makes sense. But try, try and uh, you know, I, I'm going to go. I a little don't bit know wi- anything. Let's yeah, go I'm going to. Right, I'm going to go a little <laughs> wild here. So, so try and grab me if I'm if I'm going into territory Great. that might need to be explained a little bit more. Okay, so first and foremost, we're going to need to frame this concept up in a couple of different paradigms. So first and foremost, it's actually I just said that. So firstly, the the market doesn't go around and round and up and down. It goes like a staircase. So it goes sideways up sideways, up, sideways, and up, mm-hmm. okay? Now, the other thing you got to think about is what is the typical time frame for this kind of a general movement? Now, as opposed to saying in a property clock, you know, there's the peak of the market, declining market, bottom of the market, rising market. That's the, that's the four quadrants of the property clock. Mm-hmm. There's actually three distinct phases. There's the slump, which is typically relatively flat with a typically slight downturn. Now, there are some notable exceptions to this, you know, places like Perth, um, places like Darwin. There are some obvious notable exceptions, but broadly speaking, a more, a more applicable way to think about it is up and across and up and across. Now, the time frame for these kind of movements is actually, if it actually kind of relates back to more like the 18.6 year cycle. Okay. So, which we've talked about in a previous episode, uh, the episode I did with the Kill Patel, which was that awesome. Was yeah. If you haven't, if you haven't listened to that episode, I suggest you go back to it. Um, so what we kind of need to think about is that these kind of cycles. So if we just said at the start we're at the, we're on a flat flat bit before the staircase, that's a flat market. We would consider that to be a slump, mm-hmm. even though the slump is is you know not necessarily a downturn. It could just be a relative sideways movement. Mm-hmm. And when we're talking about sideways movement, it doesn't mean directly horizontal. It doesn't mean that you know if prices get to a five hundred thousand dollar median price point, that in the in the sideways part of the um, of the step of the cycle, that it doesn't mean that it's going to stay at five hundred thousand. It might go down to four fifty or 
mm. up to 550 or yeah so it's so, not literally sideways no but more broad it's more it's more correct to think about it in that way yeah okay sure. so if you think about the start of the slump being a flat and then what happens after that is we start to get um we start to get an upturn and that's kind of like at the the axis of the step. So if the, you've gone across and then right before it starts to go up, you start to bring in a bit of a curve. That's a bit of an upturn. And then it starts to go really steep. And that's when we consider it a boom. And then it starts to flatten out again. So it's a bit of a curvy staircase, right? It's a bit, a bit of a waving staircase. And in fact, what we might be able to do is we might even be able to put a, um, a, a, a PDF download um, with this, yeah, with an image around this. Yeah, that would be super helpful, I think. Just so, just so people can see the, you know, the yeah. staircase. Yep. Yeah, yeah, totally. So there's actually three distinct phases. So slump, upturn, boom, slump, upturn, boom. And if you if you go back and look at the historical growth rates of the Australian property market on any on any scale, you'll notice that it's a continuous upwards trending line. And there are variations on that. You know, you know, it's like any like any chart. There's ups and ups and downs, but the general trend is is broadly speaking upwards. So when we kind of start to think about that, then we can start to think about market timing. Have I, have I kind of lost anything here? No, I think it's 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 good. I think obviously it's it's a lot harder if you don't have the visuals. So yeah. maybe if you are on the website and you're listening to this, we'll have a download, as you yeah. said, and maybe just open that so you can see kind of the steps that we're talking about. Yeah, totally. So a, a good a good example, a good example to use is like well, I'm trying to think of a, I'm trying to think of a really apt example, but like if the, if a market goes sideways for let's say five or six years and then it goes upwards for five or six years and then it goes across for about five or six years. You're roughly in line with the 18, okay. 18.6 year cycle. Yeah, okay. awesome. Yep. Um, so you can kind of think about it even and, and no, no two markets are going to move exactly the same. So any of these kind of models have to be a little bit malleable based on reality. If you look at the, if you look at the boom cycle for Sydney, which started booming in around 2012, mm-hmm. 2011, 2012, uh, and then that kind of peaked in 2017. Now it's going through a bit of a resurgence at the moment, thanks to a whole bunch of different environmental causes. Um, but broadly speaking, we had about a six-year, seven-year boom. All right. Yep. So, so what we need to think about then is, okay, well, how do we? Firstly, where do we want to enter into the market? Where do most people enter into, into the market? And then, what is the like? How do we understand what to do about any of that kind of stuff? I guess. Yeah. So I guess if. If this is the this is the cycle that we use and understand, right? So how do you really know whereabouts in the cycle you are? That's a good that is a good question. Because obviously, like if you have the the property clock that most people look at through Heron Todd White, mm. you can see the major cities and suburbs around the clock. So you can yeah. like easily identify. But the question is how would they identify whether whether it's a rising that's, market that's or true. a true. That's true. So how how do you think that we would use that in this case? Yeah, it's a great example. So I, we don't use the we don't use Heron Todd White as a reference point for for making market decisions, but it mm-hmm. is always really interesting to reflect on how they look at the suburbs that we're investing in. So there's a bunch of different macroeconomic factors and microeconomic factors that you need to look at. But typically what you're looking at in terms of the housing market is you're looking at supply versus demand. So is demand starting to exceed supply in the area because that's going to indicate price growth? So is sales volumes, are they increasing? Vacancy rates decreasing? Um, Is there sustained investment happening, happening in an area? Is there you know, like what's actually causing it to change. Yep. Now, what actually happens is markets get a little overheated. So uh, the biggest problem I see, and it, so what we aim to do, let me just, I know I'm dancing around a little bit here. <laughs> um, what we aim to do is we, we want to get in right at the start of the upturn. Okay, I want to get yeah. back to that. I want to get back to, I want to come back to that point because it's really critical because everyone kind of wonders how the hell do we get growth and yield at the same time? And this is basically the secret to it. <laughs> okay, so... Where we start to buy in a in an area is typically at the start of the upturn and at the end of the slump or the flat, right? Mm-hmm. So it's when it starts to curve upwards. Now, what we're looking for is we're looking for meaningful meaningful change, okay? Because when an area has been relatively fat, flat for a very long period of, for a relatively long period of time, could be five years, could be ten years, or whatever, then it's it's because nothing has meaningfully changed in the area. You know, there's been no, there's been no increase in jobs. There's been no investment by you know private or public. There's been no, there's been nothing to really shift the market. Then typically, what happens is there's 
there's an injection. And we covered a lot of these points in in our hunting hotspot series. So you can go back and kind of kind of go over them. You could be it could be um, urban renewal projects. It could be infrastructure projects. It could be a whole variety of different things. Mm-hmm. There could be lifestyle drivers, which has obviously been a big factor recently. You know these kind of things, but there's there'll be a meaningful shift in either the psychographic or demographic profile of an area, mm-hmm. and that will start to turn change the trajectory of the of the property market growth. Now that's typified by more people wanting to be there. That's the easiest possible way to think about it. Cool. More people want to be there. Yep. Why do they want to be there? There's heaps of different reasons. Maybe they feel differently about it. Psychographics. Maybe there's more jobs. Maybe it's more affordable, right? But the long and the short of it is more people want to be there and it's perceived to have value where, whereas once it did not. And that perception comes around for a variety of different reasons. Now, we obviously track a whole bunch of data around that, um, which is very, it's way more than we have time to go into today. But we want to get in that early, early part of the cycle. And the reason being is you might have only about five years worth of growth. Mm-hmm. You know, because people look at property market cycles and they go, okay, well, the last 10 years or last 30 years, it's had an average growth rate of whatever, six and a half percent, seven percent. And so they naturally think that what that means is that that suburb grows at six or seven percent every year. Yeah, but it's not linear. No, it's not linear at all. No. You get all your growth in the first five years. If you time it correctly. If you time it correctly, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so if, you know, if you know that markets go sideways and up and then sideways and up, and if you took an average over, over one cycle, which is basically a slump, an upturn, and a boom, so the three phases, and again, that period might go for like, so let's just say that goes for 10 years just to keep it simple. If, if one cycle, slump, upturn, boom, goes for 10 years, okay, and you take a 10-year average and the 10-year average is 7%, it doesn't mean that the market's gone up by 7% every year. Mm-hmm. What it means is that at a certain point in that cycle, the market went really fast and then in another point of that cycle, the market went really slow. Mm-hmm. Now, the key then is to work out how do we identify those cycles? Now, how do I identify it? That's, another, that's a really long conversation. Go back, have a look at some of our other previous podcasts. Mm-hmm. But the point being is if you know that you can get in at the start of the growth cycle rather than just randomly picking any old part of the cycle, then is that a better way to invest? You would imagine so. Well, hell yeah. I mean, <laughs> if, if you can get, if you can put yourself at the start of the cycle and get five, get the five years worth of good growth without mm-hmm. getting, getting in there too early, because you can get into markets too early. Just picking a market because it's flat and it hasn't grown is really stupid, right? It's yeah. really- Because then you've got years of holding costs and- Well, you also don't know if it's going to grow. Yeah. Like, like yeah. not all markets go up again. Like, yeah, like there are have other fundamentals supporting it. T- totally. Like, there are lots of uh, regional areas and stuff like that where, unless there is an impetus for change, nothing changes. Okay, so mm-hmm. it could be flat for a really long period of time. Yeah. So you've got to wait until there is an impetus for change and something. There's an inflection point, mm-hmm. and obviously that's one of the big, big secrets of what we do. We look for that inflection point. Then, if you get in there at the start and you get five years worth of growth, that's what's going to set you up. So, if you don't understand this, you're, you might as well just invest anywhere and hope for the best. Mm. Yeah. Okay. So the, so, the concept is that identify, you know, this is the whole, I guess, the concept of hunting hotspots. It's finding these locations where you're at this access point in, yes. in this cycle, which is the Goldilocks zone itself. It's that window of time. Well, actually, the Goldilocks zone is slightly different. We haven't even touched on the Goldilocks zone yet. Great. <laughs> <laughs> but, for the, but, the, but the first the first and most important thing is to understand that is that is that growth cycles there are two different there are there are a few mm. different cycles growth cycles go go sideways upwards sideways upwards sideways upwards yep okay so we've nailed that now what we want to do is we want to get at the start getting at the start of the upturn so we get the start of the five years worth of really booming growth yep. a lot of people wonder how we get you know stupid amounts of growth for our clients. And it's because we're positioning ourselves at the start of the growth cycle. Mm-hmm. Where most other people get into a cycle is at the boom phase, which is roughly halfway up. So if we took a t- if we said from the start of the slump to the end of the boom, if we said that was 10 years, right? And we divided that broadly speaking into three, three sections, mm-hmm. you know, so the upturn starts at year three and the boom starts at year six. Mm-hmm. Most people are getting in at year six. Yeah. Right. And we're getting in at year three. Right, or it's not it's not to those quite extremes, but that's just the general way to think about it, and that's why a lot of the places that are booming now, places like Newcastle, places like 
you know, Brisbane, places like, you know, play, even Adelaide, a lot of play, uh, they're, they're places that you should have bought two years ago. But the problem is people see a boom market and they go, oh my God, it's going up. And they see this kind of environment where people are like, oh my God, people, there was a property that was listed for 450000 and it sold for 650000 Oh my God, we have to get into get that in. market. Yeah, which you're seeing all the time at the moment. Oh, totally. And it's like, that's the wrong time to be getting into the market. But, <laughs> but you know, people are already pricing in future growth. Yeah. And that's actually what causes it to go flat. Mm. Because, because what happens is it starts rising. And when you get in there at the right time, you're buying properties at fair market value or slightly below fair market value. And then it reaches a, a tipping point where people start to rush in there and get FOMO. And then people start paying over what it's worth <laughs> and they start pricing in future growth, which is why the growth starts to speed up. And then at a certain point, you've already priced in a lot of the f- future growth, so it stops to gr- stop growing. Yep. And that's where it starts to drift sideways again. Yeah, it's pure supply and demand. Totally. So if you draw if you draw if you draw a diagonal line straight through it and said that real value is on the diagonal line, then firstly in the slump phase it would go below the line because it, you'd have properties that would be under their intrinsic value, but people wouldn't sit necessarily see the value in buying there. Mm-hmm. And then as it goes through the boom phase, it goes over the intrinsic value and people start overpaying for it. And then it has to equalize again and go flat. It's just like everything in life, it's an oscillating cycle. Yeah, cool. Okay. So now that we that, understand- that's one half of this. One half of it. Because, what is the other half? Well, inverse, inverse mm-hmm. to the growth cycle is the rental market cycle. Yep. So if we can now visualize a staircase and that's the growth cycle, you need to, you need to visualize another staircase, but it needs to be diametrically opposed, right? It's a simple way of thinking about it. So in a situation where the growth- A mirror image of it. Yeah, pretty much a mirror image of it, right? Because what happens at the start of an upturn or as it's coming out, as a as a market is coming out of a slump phase, rents rise first. So what happens is relative yields, relative gross yields or relative rent rises uh, or relative yields rise in, in relation to the median house prices. So if median house prices stay the same, let's say the median house price is $500,000, Mm-hmm. And it's staying at five hundred thousand dollars, and rent, and and let's say the average yield is in that area is five percent at a five hundred thousand dollar median house price. What happens is rents rise first, and so the relative yield goes up. Okay. So that that rent might go up to whatever six. I'm not, I'm not doing the maths on it, mm-hmm. but the yield might go up to six percent in the same market. Not because not because anything has changed except for rental demand. Mm-hmm. So as rental demand increases and it becomes harder and harder and harder to rent and it becomes more and more and more expensive to rent, then people start moving into buying properties because they see the value in that. Okay. So there's a bit of an inverse equation. So what that does is creates a bit of a gap. It's kind of like almost creates a bit of an eye shape, like a bit of a, a bit of a, an ellipse mm-hmm. where rental markets go up. Property markets are still going flat. So then all of a sudden you have this gap in between in between the median house price and the median yield that is that is widening. And then once the property prices start to move up and rental yields start to flatline relative to median house prices because they start to converge again as the prices go go up, then it's they start to join and they meet again right around right around the boom, right around at the start of the boom. Mm. Which is why when you see people rate racing into markets like Brisbane at the moment, for example. People are racing into the Brisbane market. Pro- growth is already getting priced in and yields have dropped down to like 4.5%, 4% and stuff like that. Mm. Whereas if you bought a couple of years, years ago, you would have been getting sixes in terms of yield, right? Cool. Yep. So if we can understand this gap and if we can understand that there's a moment in time where rental yields rise relative to median house prices right before median house prices grow and then yields converge back to those points, it creates a little window of time in between those, in between those two points. That is what we call the Goldilocks zone. So what you want to do is you want to be buying not when markets are too cool, so not back in too early in the slump, mm-hmm. but also not when they're too hot i.e. not in the boom phase. You want to buy basically at the start of the upturn when there's the biggest gap between uh, rental yields and median house prices. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it does, yeah. I'm just thinking about this, this <laughs> the staircase, the inverse staircase, right? Yeah. We're doing all kinds of... It's kind of like two snakes. It's kind of like two snakes sliding around each other. Beautiful, yeah. So 
they're essentially they're the same shape, right? So at one point in time, they're the opposite, the mirror image of each other. Mm. But they're really a couple of years, you know, if you realign those shapes, they, they can line up to be the same shape, right? Pretty much, yeah. So, but rents move first. Yeah. So is it fair to say that in theory, growth will kind of come, you know, if you're watching rents going up and yields going up, then the then growth will follow yes. with the upturn a few years later, right? Yes. Yeah. That is a, a reasonably accurate thing to yeah, to say. Like so and, and look, let's dig into the reasons behind that because that's a really interesting point. Yep. So why the hell do rents rise first and then why do then why do prices follow? Well, if you think about an area, look, Salisbury is a really good example of this. Okay. So Salisbury in um, in the Adelaide area that was quite flat for a long period of time because the Holden factory shut down and everyone lost their jobs and there was no other stimulus for growth there. And it was like, oh my God, there's nothing going on there. People left the area, market, the market flatlined, mm-hmm. d- declined a little bit, right? So it declined a little bit, but basically flatlined. It didn't go from, you know, it didn't crash like the Perth market. And we could kind of talk about why those markets might do that in, in, either in this episode or a different one. Mm-hmm. But so, using Salisbury as an example, it went flat because there was no real reason for it to change. Jobs had, had fallen out of the area. Yes, there was affordability and stuff like that, but there wasn't really a lot going on there. Then what happened is that there was, there was more infrastructure and um, jobs growth in the area. So they started to revitalize the old Holden factory, turn that into, a, into a, um, a business and industrial hub. There was revitalization of train lines and you know, all this other kind of stuff. And it started to bring jobs back to the area. Now, this is a really great example. Mm. because people started to move to people went oh my god i can get this job in salisbury right i'm going to get a job at a new factory a new plant a new whatever's going on over there and so what happens if you're going to move to an area for the first time do you just move there and just buy a house straight away no no you don't even know if you're going to like the job (laughs) you don't know if you're going to like the area you don't know it could be a bit so what you're going to do is you're going to move there first you're going to rent Mm -hmm. right now you might rent for six months or 12 months depending but you'll go there you'll rent you'll get you'll get the lay of the land you'll try and work out where you want to live you want to you're going to make all these kind of decisions and then you're going to buy so what typically happens when more people are coming into the area when it it becomes more desirable people move into the area and they start renting they don't start buying straight away yeah right makes sense and yeah it makes total sense right none of this is black magic it's all just logic (laughs) when you think about it yeah so so and then what happens once they once so there's a couple of things that happen then rents rise and people are like oh my god it's so expensive to rent oh my god there's zero percent vacancy rate i can't even find a place to rent oh my god if i really want to live here i'm going to have to buy so that happens and then also at the same time the people who have been renting and gone you know what i actually do like it here and i do like this job and you know i want to put down roots they also start to buy yeah, and you also get the conversations where where renters are going. Actually, it's going to cost me about the same, if not less, to have a mortgage on a house. Yeah. Now, and I like living here now. I've decided, and that's you. You tend to hear that conversation <coughs> a lot, where it's like it's actually cheaper to buy a house than to rent. Yeah, totally. And 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 this and this is a this is an ever <laughs> it's a, it's an ever continuing cycle. You know, like. You know, rent rents as a, rents in relation to mortgages or rents in relation to property prices is is a really interesting analysis. You know, like if you if the place that you live, if the suburb that you live, if it's cheaper to rent there than to have a mortgage, then it's better to rent best, mm-hmm. right? But if you're in a place where it's cheaper to rent than it is to uh, cheaper to own than it is to rent, you're better off buying. You know, from a from a from a financial perspective. So, but this is this is generally a trend. So, if you can understand that that why that kind of happens, now there's obviously a lot of factors, and we do a lot of analysis into into finding these areas. But broadly speaking, what's going to happen is rents are going to rise first, and then prices, and then sales volumes will increase, and then then after the sales volumes start to increase, then prices will start to grow. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. Great. Yeah, so, I think as well, I'm hoping that people have listened to the Hunting Hotspot series because we did go into a lot of more detail into the different drivers for these markets. For growth, yeah, yeah. yeah. For identifying these locations. 
Yeah. Tidy, two, two other episodes that I would recommend people go back and listen to as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did one on um, vacancy rates, the misunderstood metric. Yeah, that's And great. psychographics versus demographics. Yeah. So if, if you want to understand this, and, and actually we get we get emails all the time, or I get emails all the time at least anyway. People <laughs> email say, me, guys. Yeah, everyone email Gabby. <laughs> uh, but I get my emails all the time, just people going, oh, so how do we do this? How do we find all the information? And it's quite... Quite honestly, it's like there's there's a lot to it. There's a lot of moving parts. You know, we pull a lot of data from the ABS and heaps of other places, and yeah. you know, we do all. You know, we obviously spend a lot of time, energy, effort, money in analysing this kind of stuff. But at the same time, we've given away a lot of the secret sauce. It's all source. in the podcast. It's all in the podcast, right? So, if you can understand that um, the ideal time to buy is earlier in the cycle than when it's a hot spot, don't buy when mm-hmm. it's a hot spot. And some easy identification points to know whether it's whether it's already too late. Are there multiple offers being put on properties? It's a really simple one, right? If you're trying to buy a property and the real estate agents are saying, well, we're going to multi-offer, yeah. i.e. I won't accept your offer straight away. I'm going to accept 10 different offers and then we're going to analyze them. You're already too late, yep. right? Now, Agent sentiment is such a good... <coughs> qualitative yeah, totally. measurement yeah yeah totally agent sentiment is is a huge one yeah. now interesting and so there's all these kind of signs you know if, if if suddenly it's gone from two or three people going to an open home to 60 people going to an open home you're too late right if you see if you see people are paying you know 30 40 50 percent above the asking price you're already too late you know it, it, these are all these are all signs that you're already too late and another really interesting sign is is if the yields have previously been six percent and then they're down below five percent you are already too late you've got to look at the yield cycle as well relative to median house prices mm-hmm. um because you're going to say something I was just going back to that point you said about, you know, if, if you're going to, if you're looking in a location and there's like two people at an open home or whatever, and then suddenly there's 60 people, that's one of the signs for us as a business to exit that market, you know. Yeah. What about other people who are not us and do not have a business doing this? Mm. How, what do people do then? Like if it's like, okay, I've got this sign now that it's probably heating up and I've probably missed the window, what, what do I do? It's a good question, right? Because even in markets that have become overheated, we continue to look. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the Adelaide market is broadly speaking, like broadly speaking, we haven't bought there in a little while. Um, but we continue to look. Yep. Um, because if you know that an area has good fundamentals, then it doesn't necessarily make sense to mm-hmm. just go and try and find somewhere where there's no one else buying, right? Yep. That can't be the metric for making the decision. Yeah. Don't just go somewhere because it's quiet and go, oh, yeah, I think I'm beating the crowd because that's not necessarily the way to do it either. <laughs> and, to, and to that point, you know, like I've had a lot of people ask me about Brisbane um, and, I, and pub, quite publicly, I'll state that, that it's, you're probably two years too late, but that does not mean that Brisbane is not going to grow. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't mean Brisbane is not going to grow. I think Brisbane's going to do pretty well over the next few years. And so you could buy now and you could get growth. Um, but it depends on what you're investing for and where you're at in your uh, investor cycle. Because if you're getting, you know, if you're getting yields below five percent, then you're probably not going to be cash flow positive, mm-hmm. um, and so your holding costs are probably going to be significant. It's probably going to corrode your overall borrowing capacity, mm-hmm. and you're also probably going to be paying over what the intrinsic value of the property is worth. Okay, so there's a few different factors in there. So how can you think about it uh, if you are in that kind of a market? Well, one, you should do a bit of analysis to go, okay, is this the right market to be in, and where is it in the cycle? You know, how, how overheated is it? How far do I think it's got to run and why? Mm-hmm. And a, one way to think about doing that would be to look at all the infrastructure projects, jobs growth, um, longevity plans, council plans, uh, population growth forecasts, heaps of other stuff and go, okay, is this a short-term thing or is this a long-term thing? Uh, and then you should also potentially think about looking in other markets. Now, again, it's not to say that, it's not to say that buying in a... It's not to say that buying in a in an area that is booming is a bad thing, but you need to be a bit more opportunistic about it. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you can find really good deals in hot markets. You've got to be very quick when they come up, though. Yeah, obviously. Um, but it's not to say you can't buy effectively. It's just less common, and you actually have a way better opportunity to get better properties that are in a better proxy uh, in a better position for growth if you can get a little bit ahead of the crowds. I'm not sure if I answered your question though. No, you did. I'm just thinking, sorry, as always, it generally comes down to what are you trying to achieve? Yeah, totally. <laughs> it comes down to where you are at in your journey and what this Where you're at purpose. in your cycle. Yeah, where, where, where are you? Um, 
what your next purchase needs to be. Yeah. So that loops in really nicely with the apex progression. Yeah. Um, so again, because a lot of people, like you speak with a lot of people that say like, oh, I want to buy in Brisbane. Can we buy in Brisbane? And you'll have that same conversation. Like it's got good fundamentals, but it's probably too, too late. And so people, because people just hear that this is a location that they should go to yeah. without really thinking about, you know, if there's 10,000 people flocking to one suburb, they're all at different points in their journey and they all actually need a different yeah. asset for the next purchase. Um, so how do you think that works in with the Apex Progression? Yeah, with the Apex Progression, it's an interesting one because I think um, the Apex Progression, as much as anything, is about... Um, Firstly, in the foundation phase, building building up your growth base, and secondly, in the acceleration phase, transferring assets into cash flow and making sure you don't get stuck in your portfolio. Mm-hmm. So, there's a few interesting things in there. Broadly speaking, I think you should always uh, buy in the Goldilocks zone, which is a, which is earlier in the cycle. So, just as you're coming out of a slump, and just to that point as well. Sorry, before I move on and get back, I'm going to get back to what you said. Mm-hmm. When you're just coming out of a flat or a slump, it can be pretty scary, right? Because if you go to an area that hasn't grown for the last 10 years mm-hmm. and you're deciding to buy there, it can be pretty daunting. Perth. So, Perth, for example. Yeah. Or even some places in Queensland where we're currently buying. Yeah. Um, and so you really, need to, you really need to do your research to understand what is creating that inflection point, So, which is a lot of the stuff we talked about in the Hunting Hotspot series, mm-hmm. right? But the thing is, you're going to have to be brave. Like, it's not for, it's not for the faint of heart. If you're not brave, then I suggest you just do what everybody else is doing and probably overpay and probably get underperforming assets that only grow by, say, 5% over the next 10 years as opposed to, you know, 10% only a year over the next 10 years. So, to your point, though, I, I fundamentally believe that the best time to buy is not when it's booming. It is, it is earlier in the cycle at the start of the upturn. That's why, specifically, our research is targeted around being first to market. You know, typically what happens is we get into a market first and then other investors and stuff come in about six to eight months afterwards. So it's typically where you start reading about afterwards. Bendigo is a really great example, you know, that we got in there very, very early. And then all of a sudden, you know, people are like, oh my God, Bendigo's booming, Bendigo's booming. Now, really, whether you're in your foundation phase of your apex progression or in your acceleration phase, I still fundamentally think that you need to be targeting earlier in the in the cycle. Now, asset selection is slightly different, and it does it does factor into the into the apex progression where you're at in your cycle. So, um, the types of assets that you would buy though are still going to be dictated by overall market movements. Because if you wanted to pick something that was more heavily geared towards growth and less geared towards yield, ideally you'd still want to get in at the start of the growth cycle because yeah. you'll get more growth. Yeah. If you wanted to get something that had higher yield. Um, you're still, you still want to get in earlier in the cycle when yields are, are the highest relative to median prices. So I still fundamentally think that no matter where you're at in your, in your apex progression, it makes sense to get in at the right time in the market, which is at the start of the upturn, which is probably a very long time before other people are getting into the market, which can be quite daunting. And it can be sort of a little bit, um, yeah, it can be a little scary. But the reason we get an average of about 15% capital growth in the first 12 months is because we do this. So there's a huge upside to doing it. Now, an interesting thing though to think about is where does the Holy Trinity fit into this, mm-hmm. right? Because you know, some, a lot of people talk about doing subdivisions and small developments and all of that kind of stuff. And the whole theory around that, which is in the acceleration phase, is around manufacturing growth, right? It's around manufacturing growth and manufacturing cash flow which is great if the market is not growing. Yes. Now, yeah. So- <laughs> For, yeah, forcing, man- literally manufacturing the exactly. result you want because the market isn't doing it, yeah. Totally. So if we use an example where if you bought a property for, let's say you bought a property and it was yielding at say 4 4.5% and you went, yeah, great, I can buy this property at 4 4.5% yield and then I can put a granny flat in the back for about 120 grand. Uh, and then that'll get me up to about 6.5% gross yield when it's all said and done and I factor in all costs. But, you've already, but then you've also got this outlay of time, cost, effort, energy, all of that kind of stuff. Whereas if you just bought earlier in the cycle, you, you could have just bought a property with 6.5% yield mm-hmm. and also gotten the growth. Like it stops making sense, right? Yeah. Vice versa, um, for the people who are thinking, right, I need to buy something and I need to be able to build on it in the next 12 months because that's how I'm going to manufacture growth. That all makes sense if you have no idea how to do any research, which obviously we do know how to do the research. Now, 
if your if your strategy is manufacture growth, regardless of what markets are doing, then it doesn't matter where you buy. Just buy anywhere. Like it doesn't matter. Just go and go anywhere. Just find the right price property that your feasibility makes sense. Simple. You don't need to do any research on locations. All you need to do is is calculate costs. Yeah, which is interesting because I think a lot of people like I'm, I'm assuming I'm assuming people that listen to this podcast may have also done some kind of property education or something. Yeah, and so I think a lot of those groups talk about these more value add heavy strategies because they don't have the research 100%. In, in location selection behind them. So it's like you should do a chunk deal because we can relatively estimate what kind of returns you're going to get because it's manufactured. Whereas if you just did a bit more research into where you're buying, you can get the similar result without having to do the work. 100%, yeah. right? So an example, if you just look at a, a chunk, we'll use a chunk deal for an example, where you might buy property and then subdivide, build, Right. And that, that kind of model. Right. Yep. So let's just say the total amount of cash required to buy the property originally is about a hundred grand. Right. And then, and that's so plus debt. Right. But you've got to put in a hundred grand and then you've got to put in another hundred grand to fund the construction and all of that kind of stuff. So let's say you've got to put in $200,000 in total amount of cash contribution. And then the project's going to take 12 months. And then at the end of it, you're going to sell it all and you're going to make a hundred thousand dollars profit. Right, which is with that broadly speaking, they're pretty good maths for to use for for that kind of a model. Mm-hmm. What you will have made, you will have put in two hundred thousand, and you will have made one hundred thousand. So that's a fifty percent return on capital. If you just buy at the right time in the market, if you buy in the Goldilocks and or or sorry, just stepping back, or you might hold that asset and get like a six or seven percent yield. Right, mm-hmm. or, but you've still had the opportunity cost of twelve months of time and having your money locked up and a lot of risk because what if the pro- what if it goes wrong? What if the builder goes bust? What if all of this other kind of stuff? You hear these kind of horror stories all the time. There's a lot more moving parts, a lot more risk. Or if you just buy at the right point in the cycle, let's say you buy a five hundred thousand dollar property and you put a hundred thousand dollars into it for a twenty percent deposit, and then that property goes up by ten percent, mm-hmm. goes up by fifty grand. That's fifty grand. Uh, a return on capital without even factoring in cash flow for a hundred grand input. That's a fifty percent cash on fifty uh, percent return on capital, mm-hmm. and it's the same thing. So, really, you're just going to make a decision about where and where and when this fits in, and what's the easiest, what's the path of least resistance. For a lot of people, they think that that manufacturing growth is the easiest way to do it, and I, I think that that's kind of silly. But where it does fit, though, is if you can buy something earlier in the cycle. Let's say you could buy something right at the end of the slump and the start of the upturn, and it's on a, a 1,500 square meter block, and it's yielding at 6.5%. We've bought a few of those, haven't we? And Screamer. Yeah, screamers, right? They're awesome. Now, the reality of the situation is that it's quite unlikely. It's like 99% likely that that property won't stack up to do a development at that point in time. Yeah. But yep. if you buy it then because you're buying at the right time in the cycle and then the market goes up because we're bought at the right time in the cycle, then when it gets past the boom and it starts to go flat again, that's when you manufacture the equity because you've already had the uplift. Mm-hmm. So you've let the market do the work for you and then you build on top of it and that's where you get really significant returns. That's where you get like massively higher than 50% cash on cash returns because you've let the market do the work for you and then you use the, ca- the equity in the property to fund the development rather than going, I'm just going to buy something and start building straight away because, yeah, to be honest, I think that's just, yeah. th- that's just a strategy for people who like stress. <laughs> it makes so much sense though because you can buy, like you take that example, right? You buy yeah. a larger block, still got good yields because you're at the start of that um, upturn, right? Yeah. So you got good yields, so you can hold it and just sit on it and don't worry about it. Yeah, and fundamentally, and then, it's a good property and yeah. it's a good place. Yeah, yeah. And then, so I think a lot of people would think like, "Sweet, I've got this huge block. I'm just going to cut it up now, or do yeah. something with it now." Totally. Whereas it's usually not the best timing to be doing that. You know, if you can wait with with you've got the good yield, so you can wait, wait a couple of years until it's like booming, and then you can you know exit quote unquote a, a portion of that deal when it's at the higher point, like that just makes sense. Yeah, totally. It's really funny because like we obviously talk about value adds a lot. And there's multiple value adds. There's mm-hmm. under market value, which is the best one, but you can't always get it. There's, you know, cosmetic renovation, which I think is the second best one because it's the the the, the quickest and the best single dollar return and mm-hmm. all this other kind of stuff. Highest highest perceived value for the lowest cost. 
Um, you got granny flats, then you got subdivisions, then you got subdivisions and builds. They're the kind of value adds that you might think about. Mm-hmm. Now, the reality is that almost all, uh, sorry, the opposite, almost none of our clients have done any value adding to any of their properties. And they're already buying multiple properties, you know, two, two in 12 months type of thing, or typically buying their second property within eight to 13 months after buying the first one, just based on getting good growth and all of that kind of stuff. So you can get those kind of returns, then, then you don't need to start thinking about how you're going to project manage all this kind of stuff. And it starts to become a lot easier. The value adds become a bonus, not the reason. And I think that's a really big mistake that a lot of people make is that they go out thinking, okay, I have to buy a property that I can, you know, go and build something on the back. Otherwise, it's not going to work. Hmm. Well, not really. That should be like the, that should be the, the sweetener rather than the reason. Yep. The reason you should buy something is because you're buying an intrinsically good asset with good, in an area with good fundamentals before the rest of the market goes in there and you're going to get good growth. Um, and it's not black magic. A lot of people are like, oh, but how can you know? It's like, well, how can you know anything? You go and do research. How does a doctor, how does a neurosurgeon know, know which part of your brain to cut into? It doesn't just chop the top off your scone and start digging around in there hoping, hoping for the best. <laughs> He does research and he understands it. He learns how it works. And you can start to, you can really start to understand this kind of stuff, but it does take a lot of time, effort, and energy. So for a lot of people, um, it's a lot easier for them to just follow the herd and get in halfway, halfway through the growth cycle, wonder what happened, and then think, well, I guess the only way you can make money in property is if you do developments and stuff like that, which to me is just madness. So we need to wrap up soon. Yes. But I just want to put my, my naysayer hat on for a second. Yeah. So obviously there's a lot of people that would be thinking, well, you can't time the market. Like, <laughs> stop trying to say that you can time the market. But hopefully, like we've already touched on that a bit, right? And yeah. we've got so many other podcast episodes where we talk about similar things yep. to help everyone get educated on how to do this better. Um, but what happens? So we're talking about this upturn, right? Where we get in just at the start of the upturn yeah. and then there's maybe three, five, six years of strong growth, but then it turns flat, right? Yeah. So what I would imagine people would think that that's like the downside to like trying this timing the market type of strategy, right? What if it goes wrong, basically? What if it goes wrong? Yeah. So you've got a a few years of really good growth and then like a few years of nothing and people would focus on that. Like how does that how does that make it a good investment? It's a good, it's a good question. There's two parts to that. If you, think you, if you think that it's impossible to time the market, then I suggest that you just don't, don't bother having a strategy, just buy anywhere. But if you, if you genuinely don't think that you can understand market movements, then it should not matter to you what you buy, where you buy or when. Just, just randomly pick anything. Mm-hmm. Just randomly pick anything mm-hmm. because if, it, if, you, if you genuinely believe that it's impossible to do, then there would be no basis for you deciding why one property would be better than another. It's that simple, mm-hmm. right? You've got to follow that logic through. Uh, or if you do think that markets do rise at certain times and there's good times to buy in certain markets, then you're agreeing that, there is, that you can time it if you can understand the movements that cause those outcomes. That's one thing. Yep. So this idea that you can't time the market or that you can't understand market movements, I, I just think it's, I think it's primitive. And I think anyone who thinks that is, um, has got a very broken strategy, you'll probably find they're not very successful in real estate. Um, the second part of that is what if it all goes wrong? What if you, what if you do your best to get, to get in at the right time and then it doesn't work? Mm-hmm. Right, and that's a, that's important one. That's where the value adds come in because it's a bit of risk management. Now, what I, what I alluded to is if you buy a if you buy a, a big block uh, property that's a good yield in a good location early in the cycle, and uh, it, it might not be in an opportune time to to do a say a small development on it. So, what happens if that continues to go sideways? Well, the likelihood is it's not going to go not going to continue to go sideways. It just might not go up as much as you might have thought. Okay, so it will still make sense to use that value add opportunity at a certain point in time. Um, under, buying under market value is really good as well. Cosmetic renovation is really good because they're easy and they're like little less uh, capital heavy and stuff like that. So there's lower risk ways to get in and out of it. And at the end of the day, if you've bought a good property that yields really well, it's quite funny. I spoke to one of our clients the other day and they bought this triplex that was yielding at about 9%. Uh, and we were actually discussing this, this very topic, you know, what if the markets don't grow? Mm-hmm. And I actually said that to him. I said, well, I mean, how would you feel if the market, did, if you bought this, this property that you bought, how would you feel if the market didn't go up? And he said, well, who cares? It's yielding at 9%. It'll just pay <laughs> itself off and pay us while it's doing it. Mm. And so, and this is the difference between um, 
this is, I guess, the core at the core of the Holy Trinity strategy. You've got all these uh, these factors that are working together. You've got growth. What if that goes wrong? Well, you've got cash flow can pay itself down and pay you. You've got value adds. Different value adds will have different uh, validations at different points of the of the journey and all of that kind of stuff. Combined, you're creating a risk management matrix. Yeah. Inversely, it also creates a performance matrix where it pumps things up. So. If you bought something that was negatively geared and it didn't go up in value and no and, value and there was no value adds, you're screwed. There's literally, there's no way out except down. Yeah. If you buy something that's yielding at 7% and the market doesn't go up in the way that you thought or it just continues to go sideways, well, that's not ideal. Let's not beat around the bush. That's not great. You, know, you, want, to, you want growth. For sure, you want growth. But at the same time, even if you did nothing, that will pay itself down. You'll build like... Your money's still working for you and paying you, right? You're still getting a net return on your capital that's way more than if you than you than you would have if you left it in the bank. It's still doing better for you than nothing. Uh, and then if you've got a way to add value or if you've captured value on the way in, then you've got a way to increase that output. Okay, so there's yep. still benefits there. So it is it is it is a risk managed way of thinking about it. Yeah, I love thinking about the Holy Trinity as a risk mitigation strategy because i think like you can hear so many people say like oh in a property you should get these three things cash flow growth and value add potential but it's like i'm i'm hoping that people can see that we think of it as as a risk mitigation strategy it's not just a a glossy phrase to be thrown around like hey yeah. you should get all these three nice things well like, it, there's it's, a reason it's why. two things right it's a, <laughs> it's a it's a it's a high performance matrix yeah if you if they all work fucking boom like like if they all work, if you get really high growth, really high cash flow, and you can add value, it's like it's like rocket fuel. Yeah. So why wouldn't you aim for that? Because it's mass. It's just like. Mm-hmm. But if you aim for all of those things and something goes wrong, the whole idea is that two it's backups. you've got yeah you've got at least two backups. <laughs> yeah. Right, you got at least two backups. Like like if you get high growth, if you think it's high yield, but then something I don't know. Let's just say something happens to the rental market, uh, and the yields crash but it's high growth and you've got a way to add value, you're probably going to be okay. If you've got uh, high yields and, you, and a way to add value and you suddenly don't get any growth, you're probably going to be okay. If, you, you know, if you've got... Was that the only options? No, wait. If you've got, if you've got, high, if you've got high growth and high cash flow, value adds don't matter. <laughs> mm, yeah, it's just a screen. If you've got good growth and good cash flow, then value add doesn't matter. Like It literally doesn't matter. And so, if you whatever, if you only ever have two of those three things working, you're going to be fine. If you get all three, it's it's awesome. Which is why we aim for all three. So, cool, amazing, great. All right, guys, if you've enjoyed this episode, let us know. We've got to go, Gabby. Can we do another episode again soon? You like hanging out? With I me. like it. It's good. <laughs> I think everybody else I'll likes it too. Right. I'll allow it. All right, cool. <laughs> if you want Gabby to do more podcast episodes, <laughs> uh, send us send Gabby an email. Gabby at dash oh, dot dot com dot au. Send, 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 send Gabby an email. Say, Gabby, we want more Gabby on the podcast because I think everyone <laughs> wants that. That's all you just say. Gabby, we want more Gabby on the podcast. Thank you. Um, with an emoji. With an emoji. Of and your <laughs> <laughs> no eggplants. Um, <laughs> anyway, on that note, um, let us know if you like this episode and if you've got any questions about the Goldilocks zone. Uh, and of course, make sure you like, subscribe and do all that kind of good stuff. And we look forward to seeing you on the next episode.